rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, Bob Hutchins here, coming to you from just outside of Nashville. And I am speaking to someone in my old stomping ground, South Florida. Mr. Brian McLaren is joining us. I'm really excited. Just got a hold of his book recently. It's called Faith After Doubt, and you need to pick it up if you haven't. I know lots of my listeners are fans and readers of Brian from his previous books. And so before we jump right into the interview today, I just want to give you a, a brief background uh, bio of Brian. He's a former English teacher. He was a pastor for 24 years. Now he's an author, an activist, a public theologian, and frequent guest lecturer for gatherings in the U.S. and internationally. His work has been covered on Time Magazine, Newsweek, USA Today, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and many other media outlets. He's the author of more than 15 books, including his latest that we're going to jump into today, as I mentioned, Faith After Doubt. And he's also a faculty member of the Living School at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and he lives in Florida. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Bob. Great to be with you. Well, Brian, I've been loving your new book. It just came out, Faith After Doubt, and what a, what a, what a well and a breath of fresh air for so many of us. I feel like you are putting into words what so many of us uh, have gone through, and I know yourself has gone through. Can you just distill it down maybe in a brief few sentences of what was the, where did this book come from and why did you think it was so important for, for right now? Sure, sure. Well, you know, I grew up in a super conservative religious background where we really weren't allowed to ask questions. We weren't really encouraged to learn and study, but the, the conclusions were pretty much determined before we started. And, and I was an inquisitive kid. I really loved science. And I remember at a young age thinking evolution made a whole lot of sense. And my church said, yeah, you can't believe in that. And so I think I sort of had a, you know, that streak of I wasn't going to fit in uh, from a young age. Fortunately, I encountered a couple of people who encouraged me to ask questions. And so I found a way to stay in Christian faith and ended up becoming a pastor and what happened in my years as a pastor is we started attracting a lot of people either who had never been part of a church or who maybe had been born and baptized Catholic or Methodist, but, you know, hadn't been to church in 20 or 30 years. And so they would come with all their questions and frustrations. And mm. so a huge part of my pastoral ministry was helping people figure out whether they could have an honest faith. And that continues to be a big part of my own life. I, I, and, and when you bring up the question of why that's important now, mm -hmm. you know, I think all of us are still in some ways recovering from January 6th. Mm. We're trying to process what happened on January 6th here in the U.S. In the sense that here we see all these people holding up Bibles and Jesus flags and shouting praises and prophesying and all the rest in Jesus' name as they're storming the Capitol and calling to hang people and all the rest. And, 
And I just think so many of us think something is seriously, seriously wrong with our religious tradition. And we're trying to figure out, is there anything salvageable there? So that, that really sets the stage, I think, for, for this book. Mm. Well, there's some stats that you cite in the beginning of your book. You talk about 65 million adults in the U.S., drop out of active religious attendance and about 2.7 million more are leaving every year. That's, those are pretty large numbers. And there's another poll that came out that said the percentage of white evangelicals in the U S has dropped from 21.4% to 14.2% since 2008 and white Catholics have dropped from 16% to 12%. How do you think the reality of doubt plays out in those specific statistics and situations? Yeah, well, great, great question. Look, in the most basic level, I think what we could say is a whole lot of people doubt it's worth going to church anymore. <laughs> yeah, we're kind of forced that way right now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what happens after COVID. You know, to, I have a suspicion that a lot of people, once they're out of the habit, will say, yeah, I, I can't see a good enough reason to go back. So I think those numbers will, th- those trends will continue. But I think deeper than the issue of just, I, I, I've lo- I, I'm doubting the value of institutional Christian involvement. I think there's a, a group of people who would say, and I'm doubting beliefs that I was given. Uh, this is especially a big issue for people who grew up conservative Protestant or conservative Catholic, where hold, upholding beliefs is, is in many ways what it means to be a Christian. You know, it's the, it's the definition. And what happens to a lot of people is they start with one belief that they doubt. For me, it was, you know, literal six-day creation when I was 12 or 13 years old. But it, any number of things. And, and, and people think if I could just get an exemption on that one belief, I could stay Christian. But then there's another and another and another. And eventually I think people start having much, much deeper questions that are really questions about authority figures and sources of authority that they've trusted, about communities that they belong to and how those communities operate. And of course, on the deepest level, questions about what do we mean when we say the word God and what is honestly believable for me when, when we want to talk about God. So all of those things I think are thrown in the mix of those 65 million people. I, I just I got an email from someone who just read the book the other day, who's a um, counselor, a therapist. And he said, he, when people come to see him, he's you know, not a religious, he, he doesn't have a religious practice, he's just a therapist. But he said, he often asks people, do you have any kind of faith? And he said, it's almost like a script. Well, I used to go to church, but, and, and then there's this feeling that something stopped working. And, and that, I, 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 I think until, we're, until we have more people willing to say, these doubts aren't a fault of the doubters. They're telling us there's something in the way we're doing religion that needs to change. I think that those numbers will just continue to grow. Mm. You make a bold statement, Brian, in your book, and some would say shocking. You say, only doubt can save the world. What, yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, let me give just a quick story. I, I have a friend who's an economist, and he, he's not a religious person. And he jokingly said to me once, 
Brian, if you think religious fundamentalists are tough, wait until you talk to economic fundamentalists. <laughs> but, you know, we have a way of running our economy that has worked really well for us for hundreds of years. And suddenly we're realizing that this way of running our economy is super bad for the planet. Hmm. The planet cannot stand another 500 years of the kind of demands that we're making on it. Not only that, but the way we're running our economy funnels a bigger and bigger piece of the pie to a smaller and smaller number of people. And so other people are left farther and farther behind. And, and so suddenly we realize we have to have the courage to doubt some things about our economic system. And then people are saying, yeah, and you know, the way we've done marriage, the way we've done parenting and the way we're doing politics. My, I used to be in higher education and my daughter's a college professor there are deep questions going on in higher education where people say, we know how important uh, college education is, but we also know the way we're doing it is keeping a certain group of people in a position of privilege and keeping a whole lot of other people out. And how can we find a new way to do it? So this sense that almost all of our institutions are in doubt. And if, if all we do is double down on what we've been doing and, and, just yell louder uh, what we've been saying. I think we all have this feeling we are in a deep, deep bind. And so this sense that deep rethinking is needed, which means doubting some of our assumptions. I think, I think, I think the desperation we see in many people, like we saw in people on January 6th, trying to get something old to keep working and not being willing to face change. I think we're just seeing that everywhere, not just in religion. Let's get into your personal kind of leading, kind of circle back around. I love, I love the way that you, you lay the book out. It's the part one is the descent into doubt. And you talk about the doubt is loss. And then doubt is loneliness. Doubt is crisis. Doubt is doorway. Doubt is growth. I, I love I love the way that's laid out because so many of us, you know, just start from the beginning, doubt is loss, doubt is loneliness. Yeah. When you do go through an unraveling of your faith, which many times feels like you're falling off a cliff into an abyss that you have no control over. It's yeah. not something, yeah. Yeah. the hardest thing to explain to someone maybe yeah. who hasn't gone through it is that it's not something you do to yourself. You just wake up and through a series of events, you you just, you can't be that person anymore. So talk to me yeah. a little bit about what, what moved you out of traditional evangelicalism or fundamentalism? Mm -hmm. Was, did something happen? Was it something that was gradual? And what part of it, second question is, what moved you out of it? And what parts of it do you still value, if any? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I became a pastor in 1982 and I didn't realize it, but something was already going on behind the scenes. And what we now call the religious right was really taking over evangelicalism. And I saw that happening. In fact, I remember the first time I, I read this article that all of these evangelicals were going to vote for, for Ronald Reagan and they were rejecting Jimmy Carter and I remember thinking, what is going on? It just made no sense to me. Something is happening here. And so through the 80s, that intensified. And I started realizing that 
what was happening in evangelicalism was closely interwoven with denial about our racial history and as a country and was deeply tied to other ideologies. And I would say by 1990, I just felt I don't fit in this community anymore. And so I looked for sort of kindred spirits, what you might say, people on the progressive edge of evangelicalism. And there were quite a few of us in the early 90s. And in the late 90s, I started, my first book was published in 1998. And I remember thinking, when this book comes out, I'm going to lose all my friends. Because I, I was basically saying something is changing and we've got to rethink this whole thing. Uh, what was interesting, I lost a few friends, but many, many more friends came out of the woodwork and said, we thought we were the only ones feeling this way. And so I think by the late 90s, a lot of us were speaking up and a lot of us were gaining courage. And I think what we didn't anticipate, a little bit like when our nation elected Barack Obama, we, we didn't anticipate that that would stir up all the uh, white supremacists to have what Van Jones called a white lash. And I think in some ways, the more that we spoke up, the, the stronger the fear and reaction was to sort of double down. So mm. I feel that by the late 90s, it was becoming clear that I wasn't really welcome in those settings anymore, that they were changing and I was changing. And what's so interesting to me is many of my Catholic friends have an almost identical story to tell. You know, in Catholicism after Vatican II, it felt like there was this opening up. And then by the 1980s, there was this closing down again. And, and here Pope Francis is on the scene who feels like a breath of fresh air, but they're watching their own Catholic bishops, so many of them oppose this Pope who in some ways is, is maybe the best thing that's happened to the Catholic Church in a very long time. So it's this sense that there's this push and pull for identity that we feel in faith communities and we feel it in nations and we feel it in global civilization too. Mm. You, you know, you, we were talking before the podcast, you have your own podcast out and it's called Learning to See. And it's a six part series with Father Richard Rohr and Jackie Lewis. And in that you lead and talk and have discussions about the different types of biases that we all yeah. have. And as someone who has studied and is currently studying psychology and my background is in as psychology affects consumerism and marketing. Yes. But, but now at this point in my life, going even further to the individual and re realizing my own bias and sociological psychology uh, as we observe the world today, I was fascinated by your interest in that and how you really approached the doubt, the spiritual questions, the place that we find our world in today through the lens of of bias. And yeah. without getting into all that, because, you know, yeah. there's a long list of them. Why do you think it's so important for us today, first of all, to have the self-awareness to realize I have my own bias, but also to, to see that maybe these decisions, these, these things that I hold so dearly, the yeah. things that I think are so integrated with my own identity really have more to do with bias than they have yeah. to do with quote truth or yeah. something that is deeply ingrained in me. It, it might have more to do with maybe where I was brought up or maybe yeah. the lens that my own insecurities bring to the table. Maybe 
my unconscious biases. Can you just give me maybe a snapshot or a little, a little bit of that? Because I think it's really, it's fascinating and it's super, super helpful. Well, uh, Bob, you and I have a lot in common. Obviously, you're uh, professionally trained in, in um, psychology. And for me, it's, it's an avocation. But actually, in 2016, in January of 2016, I remember I was watching in the Republican debates, primary debates, I was watching Donald Trump vanquish all of his opponents. And I called a friend of mine who's a PhD in psychology. And I said, hey, look, something is happening psychologically. I feel like I'm watching something happen on the debate stage, but it's also happening in the brains of millions of Americans. And it's like this whole psychological shift is happening. If you see any articles about this that you think are valid, you know, from your professional expertise, please send them my way. So he started sending in my way. Another friend of mine who's also a doctor started sending me things about brain science, helping me understand. So I've just been intrigued with this, especially in recent years. And, and I think what, what we're coming to realize, I said, is that we're becoming enlightened about the enlightenment, Mm. meaning the enlightenment said that we can transcend authoritarianism through reason, that we don't just have to believe what we're told to believe, but we all have the power to think rationally. And, and that enlightenment opened up these last you know, hundreds of years of, of progress and, and so on. But at the same time, I think what's happening now is we're realizing that we're not as reasonable as we thought. Mm. And one factor we can say is psychological, and that is that our brains don't want to work too hard. They're very efficient. It's not that they're lazy. They're just efficient. And so they, they don't like to take in information that will require a lot of effort of us. To, to have to rethink a lot of our, to, to have to rearrange uh, a lot of our mental architecture. And then another dimension I think is sociological, that we belong to groups and we cherish that belonging very, very deeply. And we don't want to accept ideas that will get us in trouble with the groups that we belong to. Mm. Well, you put that together, a resistance to things that disturb me and a resistance to things that disturb my group and, and suddenly you think, if I'm ever going to really know what the truth is, I'm working against a lot. I'm, I'm walking into the wind here. <laughs> Even my own brain is working against me in some ways. And, and so that has huge implications for people who are going through doubt because they're, they're, they're saying, if I really, do I really care about the truth or do I just want to say what other people want me to say? And, and sometimes maybe we have the luxury of making choices about that, but sometimes reality just says, I will be a liar if I keep saying what I used to say. So mm. all of those things put people in deep turmoil and foment. And, and I, and I feel it in my own life too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would really encourage my listeners to go out and, and look up learning to see that six part conversation about different types of bias and what I love is you <laughs> put them down, start them all with C so they're easier <laughs> to remember. Yeah. So yeah. that's a great series. And, and I love the perspective of Jackie Lewis and Father Richard Rohr just speaking into from their own bias and experience yeah. over the years. So it's, it's a really beautiful time. How do, let me ask it like this. How do the disillusioned and, and the deconstructed get back to themselves 
when, when they know they don't fit the life they've been living, but don't want to fall into another rigid structure in this current dynamic and complex reality that we're in, how do, how do we find ourselves, I guess? And I know that that's a big question, but this has been your life's work. um, And you've been on this path longer than many of us. So help, help, help me with that a little bit. Yeah. I love the way you asked that, Bob. So here's where a tool can be useful for us. And that tool is stage theory. And in human development and faith development, there's, there are a whole variety of theorists who talk about stages. And whenever I bring this up, I always feel I have to say that any theory is a simplification, right? Life is messy. Life doesn't conform to anybody's model, but models can really be helpful. Uh, Just as an example, my wife and I have four adult children and and five grandchildren. But when, when we were pregnant, when she was pregnant with our first child, we went to those childbirth classes and and, you know, to have a nurse and a midwife explain, here's what's going to happen in the first trimester of pregnancy. And here's what's going to happen in the second trimester. And here's what's going to happen in the third. And when you get close to delivery, here's what to expect. And then when delivery starts, here's the early stages of delivery. And then there's this thing called transition where you think you're going to die and you're going to hate your husband and, you know, and all the rest to have to, to be prepared and say, oh, I, 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 then I, I still am going to have to go through the hard part, right? Or my wife was still going to have to go through the hard part, the hard parts of this, but at least we weren't shocked by what was coming. Hmm. And even, and I think this is one of the ways that it really helps us. You know, in my years as a pastor, I, I, of course, had to do a lot of funerals and, 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 and doing grief counseling for people who were bereaved you know, you had to help them take seriously how terribly hard the bereavement process was going to be. And you'd have to give them permission and say, listen, it's going to feel like this and it's going to feel like this. And then some days you're going to feel like this. And then after six months or so, you're going to notice this. And probably in about a year, you'll notice this. And just by giving people that kind of shape, it helped them see, oh, there's not anything wrong with me. Okay. This is how this process unfolds. Mm. And I think people need something like this in their spiritual life mm. to say that if you start feeling that you're being dishonest with some of your beliefs, and then you start feeling almost as if you're separated from yourself, you're saying one thing to certain authority figures, but inside you're thinking, I don't really know if I believe that anymore. And you notice that that's, that's a good sign. That's a sign of growth. That's what happens to people who are growing. Hmm. And, you know, just to give people some of that sense. And so in the book, I offer a four stage model that might help people. And it especially, I think it's helpful to people in the third stage who, who feel that they've lost so much and they don't know if they'll ever get anything back again. Hmm. And, and to help people know, actually know it's only by going through this much loss that you can get some better things back again. Can you lay out briefly that four-stage model and what they are? Yeah, sure. So real easy to remember. First stage is simplicity, followed by complexity, followed by perplexity, and followed by harmony. If you want to think of it this way, simplicity is where we all are raised into as children. To, and, and simplicity is really about dualism. It's about 
the things that a child needs, safe, dangerous, poisonous, delicious, friend, enemy, home, not home, you know, those, those binaries that we need just to survive and stay safe. But then what happens is, and and I should say a lot of people, that's really where they stay their whole lives. They stay in simplicity. And especially in the world of religion, because there are a lot of religious communities that just want to keep everyone's simplicity. They think that that's what God wants and that's what life requires. So, but then more and more of us, usually by our teenage years or by college, we, we go into complexity where we realize those simple in, out, us, them, good, bad rules that we were given don't really match reality. And so now we complexify and now we have to figure out how do I survive and how do I make life work in a more complex world? I call that a stage of pragmatism. And then I think a lot of people stay there their whole lives, especially America, because America just loves pragmatism. But two things can go wrong with our pragmatism. One is we fail. In other words, we, we, we are trying to be a success and make life work, and it doesn't work. And then we think, what do we do now? But we have another problem if we succeed. And, and this is one of the great crises of middle life, we, of middle age, we we succeed and think, is this all there is? Gosh, is, is this what I spend the rest of my life doing, just repeating this process? Is this all there is? And so many people are pushed out of complexity into perplexity. And in this stage, they go back and they not only think that simplicity doesn't explain everything, they think it actually did a lot of damage. And all of those endeavors of my complexity stage I was kind of shallow and I was kind of missing out an awful lot. And that's where this deepening comes, but it also comes with suspicion. Right. And so after perplexity, I think is a stage that I call harmony. You could also call it solidarity. You could call it humility where we realize, you know, I'm never going to know anything, everything. And, and I, I have to be, I have to now come to terms with my limitations, but maybe I start to find that those limitations introduced me to a new kind of wiser and deeper simplicity, where instead of judging everybody else, I have empathy for this struggle of being human that other people have. So that would be a short summary. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. That, that's very, very helpful. It reminds me of, of Father Richard Rohr's, you know, order, disorder, reorder. Yes. But I love how you have those, you know, simplicity and complexity. It, it, it really is something that I find it's not not necessarily an identical human journey, because like you said, some people are completely fine and very productive staying in simplicity or complexity. And yet sometimes, you know, through great pain or or through great love, we're pushed to those next phases, which can be very painful and lonely, as you've outlined in your book, which I find very helpful. You know, you have a quote in your book from Einstein, where he described his experiences of coping with data that took him off the edges of his scientific map. And this is what he said. He said, it was if the ground had been pulled out from under one with no firm foundation to be seen anywhere upon which one could have been built. That's where a lot of us feel so many times in yeah. this journey of, of faith or lack of faith that the ground feels like it's been pulled out from under us. And we find sometimes that that falling is peaceful and freeing, but we also find it can be full of grief and mourning that we don't yeah. know what to do with sometimes. 
You write a lot about that in the book. Any, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, first, uh, I'm glad that you appreciate that because I, I, I had questions when I was writing. Am I spending too much time on this? But I felt I really needed to acknowledge the pain of doubt, the individual pain, the social pain, the relational pain, and you know, psychologists you know often talk about how the loss of a paradigm, the loss of a, a narrative that we've lived our lives by is one of the most disruptive experiences in a person's life. It's, it's traumatic. And so there really is great, great pain and a great feeling of loss. Some of the mystics talked about a dark night of the soul and the way they talked about it, they, they would they wouldn't sugarcoat it. They would say, this was awful. This was terrible. And as someone who's been through this mm. more than one occasion, it is terrible. Yes. But there is something that people feel who've gone through it, that they say, if you gave me the option of putting my life on rewind and not going through this, well, I like who I've become because yes. I, I, I survived this and I went through this. And you know, for people in Christian faith, they started with certain ideas about God that are popular and accepted, and they get a lot of social benefit from going along with those beliefs. And then they go through experiences that say, I just don't know if I can believe that anymore. And, and their experience of God when they're done is much harder to talk about. It's much harder to put into words, but they have this feeling that it is deeper and sweeter and realer. There's a, when I saw the name of your podcast, I thought of a favorite song of mine by a musician named Bruce Coburn called Rumors of Glory. Mm. And Bruce Coburn has this line in one of his songs, those who know don't have the words to tell. Those with the words don't know so well. Yes. <laughs> and that certainly matches, I think, how long yeah. has come to feel. That's great. Yeah, thank you for that. As you're as you're talking to different people in the world, and and I know you travel, and you've been working at the Center for Action and Contemplation, and I know this is a common question, and I, I I ask it quite often with the different guests that I have. Do you feel maybe it's wishful thinking, but do you feel there is some sort of worldwide shift that is taking place, and if so? Can you verbalize what you what you feel is happening? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, the only way I can answer that is by saying I think contradictory things are happening at the same time. Mm. I think we have a group of people who are, in, if we want to talk about stages, are moving forward, are leaping forward, are pressing forward. And at the same time, I think we have a very large group of people who are running backward. And so, and, and I don't know, I don't think there's any way to know what the result of that is going to be. And, and I think, in other words, I, I don't know if we were to say, is there a center of gravity, you know, between these poles and does the center of gravity move forward or backward? I don't know. And I'm not even sure if that even makes sense and what's going to happen in our world. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, if I can make an analogy, I've very, been very active in, in the issue of climate change, and I do all I can to help people take our environmental opportunities and responsibilities uh, 
seriously. And, and I do all I can to help people understand that living in a different way with the earth is, is a wonderful thing. It's not a loss. It's a huge gain. And years ago, I was uh, talking to a friend and we were just saying how hard it is to shift that center of gravity toward more realization and commitment to action on the issue of climate change. And he said, oh, well, we have one incredible voice in our favor. And I'm thinking, who's he talking about? Is he talking about Al Gore? Is he, you know, <laughs> we have one incredible voice. And finally I said, well, who are you talking about? He said, the earth. <laughs> he said, he said, if we don't listen, the earth's going to keep speaking. And that's going to, and you know, it's going to cause some pain when the earth uh, tells us what it's trying to tell us, but reality is speaking to us. Mm. And so I think this is this other realization that, that it might, it, it's, it's not a question of whether we change, it's how much pain we want to go through before we, before we grow up a little bit more. Mm. I want to shift gears slightly and thank you for that that info. You're now a member of the faculty at, at the Center for Action and Contemplation. That's Father Richard Rohr's organization. Father Richard Rohr talks a lot about contemplation and the contemplative mind. So for you, how do you feel contemplative practices uh, help us find healing or health in this complex, very diverse society that we find um, that, that seems to be tearing itself apart with disparate goals. How can contemplative practice help? You know, I, I I want to be realistic with that question, Bob, because I, I think I can say two, again, almost contradictory things. I think there's one group of people who are attracted to contemplation. Some of them show up at center for action contemplation, but they show up a lot of other places too. And what they're really looking for is they're saying, I think the world is going uh, to pieces and I just want to find some inner peace. And I sympathize with that. And you know what, you know, I I have a dear friend right now who's in a very, very tough go with cancer. And all of us know, he knows, all of us know that uh, this is, you know, this is going to take his life. So someone in his circumstance, you want a person to have all the peace they possibly can. Um, and contemplation really, really can help in that. It can help us to, in a sense, separate from our reactivity. That's the, one of the ways I like to, to describe what contemplation is. It's when we acknowledge how reactive we are, reacting in fear, reacting in pride, reacting in resentment. And then we're able to say, but you know what? I'm not my pride and I'm not my resentment and I'm not my fear. And we, we learn in a certain sense to disconnect from it and observe it, but not let it be the controlling reality in our life. But I think there's another, and, and so that's all well and good. But the thing that scares me sometimes is when people in a sense, just want an escape who we actually need to be deployed for action. And that's where I'm especially interested in the kind of contemplation that can help us not just survive, but actually help us be different so that we can be change agents mm. uh, in, in, in this world. And, and that kind of contemplation is really, really important. In, in traditional Christian theology, they used to have this big dichotomy. You can live the life of contemplation or you can live the life of action, the via contemplativa or the via activa. And, and what I'm saying and what Richard has said for all these years is we're not looking for an either or choice. We're looking for a form of contemplation that 
gives us depths of motivation and insight and stability uh, so that we can do be engaged in a better kind of action. Does, does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. I love the openness. I love the, just the transitional nature of, of you, of your work and, and your writings. What, how does one stay? Let's say I'm still, um, still holding on to some deep, very personal beliefs in my faith. And at the same time, I want to stay open to change. Yeah. How, how does one stay open to change in the midst of their strongly yes. held beliefs? Yes. You know, the, in, in Christian tradition, there, there, were, there was another one of these dichotomies. They, they talked about the apophatic tradition and the cataphatic tradition, two very, very big words. But the cataphatic tradition says there's a lot that we can say about God and we can have conversations about God and we can make statements about God that give us deeper and deeper understanding and appreciation of God. And the apophatic tradition says, yeah, but you know, your words can get in the way too. And sometimes the very best thing we should do is just be quiet and just observe and just try to enter a state where we're not trying to put words on everything. And we're just open to the experience of God's presence. And so these two traditions exist sometimes in tension and sometimes in a beautiful dance, you know, in, in Christian tradition. But one of the things that in that apophatic tradition that's suspicious of words that they say is they say, so whenever you make a statement about God that really seems true to you, consider the truth of its opposite. Mm. So someone says, God is our father. And so we can ponder the truth of that. God's paternal love and God's great faithfulness and, and care but then we'd have to say, but in what ways is God not our father? That might allow us then to say, well, you know, God is like our mother in some ways too. And then we might say, and you know, fathers sometimes do a pretty bad job of trying to control their children or they abandon their children. So what about our idea of father doesn't really fit with God? Hmm. And this ability to not be overly connected to one statement, I think is one of the the, the techniques or practices of our tradition that can help us hold our statements, but also open them and expand them. One, one other thought that could be helpful, there's a wonderful Catholic philosopher uh, named Jack Caputo, who is seen as a kind of Christian postmodern philosopher. He was one of the primary confidants of the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. And Jack uses this word deconstruction that a lot of people use. And he says, deconstruction is not destruction. Deconstruction is love. Mm. And what he means by this is when you deconstruct something, it, you're, you're taking it apart. You're saying this thing didn't just float down from heaven. This idea developed. Well, let's look at how it developed and let's look at the stages of its development and the parts and the influences. And we don't do that because we hate it and want to destroy it. We do it because we love it and we're interested in it. Mm. And I think that's another thing maybe that we can do with our beliefs. We can say, let's love these beliefs enough to see where they came from. Mm. And let's love these beliefs enough to see how they function in our lives. And, and that's not to hate them. It's to love them and take them seriously. And it's interesting when you do that, you don't lose the belief, 
but in a sense, you hold it in a different way. I, I don't know if I'm making that clear or not. Mm. But, but. No, it, it's it's beautiful, and it it reminds me of a passage in your in your new book where I think you quote Rachel Held Evans. Yes, where you know you have the freedom to say in any given day, well, on the days that I do believe in God, yes, this this and this. Yeah. I think so many of us, if we're really honest. That's yeah. kind of where we live. You know, yeah. some days I feel like I'm all in and I'm part of the team. And then some days I'm like, mm, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't yeah. think it's real. And what you're saying is that's good. That's good. Keep exploring, keep, keep yeah. embracing the doubt and see where it takes you. Because yeah. like you just said, when you do are able to hold it in love and examine it, and move beyond the simplicity and the complexity to eventually to a place of harmony that you realize really what we're all talking about is there's something bigger than ourselves and the human experience is common to us all. Let's figure out what that really means instead of a simplistic agreement of, of what we call a big T truth and say, maybe it's much bigger than we ever dreamed or thought. You know, I love that, that example from Rachel Hall Evans that you mentioned, because you think that statement, some days I believe in God and some days I don't. And of course, the stage one response is the days you don't are bad and the days you do are good. That's simplicity. And then the stage two response is how can I fix the days that I don't, right? And then the stage three response is to say, is to come out and be honest and say that. And then I think the stage four response is, is to just lovingly hold that and say, I wonder on the days I don't what it is that I don't believe. And I wonder on the days that I do what it is I really do believe. And then we might really start ha having a chance to say, I wonder what I mean when I say God. Mm. And I wonder if I stopped just having one definition of God I wonder what I'd say on the days I don't believe in God, what do I believe in? And I wonder if that is what I do believe in on those days is actually part of what I should mean by the word God. <laughs> mm, that's so good. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's a process. You know, if, if I were helping a friend, that's what I would do for my friend. I would try to help my friend go through that process. And I wouldn't want to rush my friend through that process. Sometimes it's a little harder to do that for myself, but to be a friend to myself means to say, well, you know what? You're a human being too. You have the right to go through this process and ask these questions. It's part of what it means to be human. And it really is the, it really is the journey toward harmony that is necessary if you want to get there, right? It's like, you can't jump stages or can you? Well, I, I think, you know, again, I would never want to be rigid about this, but here's sure. what I would say. I think when I was in stage one, I had a couple of spiritual experiences that, that were like short vacations into stage four. Mm. <laughs> I think I also had some short, you know, journeys into stage three, but I wasn't really ready to be there on a sustained basis. So I would just go there for a short time and then I'd go back until I developed the skills, you know, to, to get to a better place or not a better place, but just I, to get to that place. And so I think, uh, I think we can, by having those, experiences, those little vacations, those breakthroughs, then we know something is possible. 
And when we know it's possible, if we want, then we start moving our lives toward that idea that's possible, you know? Mm. To me, that's the way that temporary experiences become really, really important. And they, but, but they don't solve our problem. We then still need to do the hard work of growing to where that experience becomes a little more normative uh, and, po- and, and possible on a daily basis. In your life today, Brian, what places or things or people leave you more patient, peaceful, gentle, joy-filled, mm-hmm. faithful, kind? What, where do you find that today? Well, you know, that's where maybe this idea of stages can be helpful because I think all of us meet people and we just say, gosh, who, that person, I know they're not perfect, but man, there are a couple steps ahead of me on this journey. <laughs> and, and so often they can't explain to us how to get what they have. But if we can be around them enough, we start to pick it up. I, I, I remember an experience I had like this many years ago. I was at this event. I won't go into all the details, but the organizer of the event, he was sitting at a, a booth in a restaurant all alone. And I went over and said, could I sit with you? He said, yeah, sure. And, and I said, are you okay? You don't look so good. He says, I'm having a rough time. He said, see that guy at that table over there? He said, he is, he's here at my event and he's going to all of my major donors and telling them they should stop funding me and they should start funding him. Mm. He said, I invited him to this event. And several of my donors have come and told me what he, the spiel that he's going through with them. And he said, I'm just sitting here struggling, trying to figure out what I'm going to do about that. And I remember thinking, ooh, man, that sounds complicated. I'm glad I'm not in your pay grade and having to deal with that. But as we sat and I listened to him talk, I felt like I was watching somebody not just say, I hate that guy, not just say, I'm going to get that guy. I watched him try to expand his circle of love to even love that guy. I'd never seen anything like that before. I didn't know how to do it myself, but I thought someday I hope I grow up enough that I won't just be reactive <laughs> and, and always be in competition with somebody. But when I have a conflict with someone, my first reaction is, how can I respond to this person in a loving way? Yeah, and I think we catch it by observing it um, from others. And you know, that's why there are all those stories and like they're really common in Buddhist literature of the student who wants to learn from a monk and the monk says, follow me. And then the monk crosses a river and he has to swim across the river and the monk climbs a mountain. He has to climb. I think that's a way of saying it's worth it to go to a lot of trouble <laughs> to be around people who can help you get the next thing that you need. Yeah. I, I frankly, I bet it's why people listen to your podcast, Bob. It's because yeah. people think I, there's something I'm getting listening to this and, and it's really worth it to me. Is there a value in your life? And, and I know this is personal, so feel free to answer sure. how you want to or you can, but is there a value in community and regular practice for you personally? And without getting into personal details, what, and what does that look like for you? Because yeah. I think there is a loss of what, what, what many times people miss, we miss the community and we miss maybe the practice yeah but we find community in other human beings, which that's what community is. But for you, what, what do you, what's your practice or what is, what do you find uh, 
is still relevant for to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I was a pastor for 24 years and when I left the pastorate, I had the question, am I still going to attend church? And, right. and I decided I still wanted to attend church, but here is my struggle. I can, I just know that at almost every church is, has inherited liturgies and structures and policies and hymned, hymns and prayers that just don't feel like they fit the world today. And so if I'm honest, whenever I'm in church, I, and these days online because of COVID, but you know, I feel like we're doing our best with a really, it's like we're trying to cook with a really bad set of pots and pans and <laughs> spatulas, you know? Right. Uh, and so yeah, I, I feel honestly frustration and I don't blame that on anybody. I just think that's, that's where we are. Mm. But I, I really believe that, that the things we need are generally, they generally require communities to teach them. Mm. And, and again, I, I think this is why places like the Center for Action Contemplation spring up because they're saying, well, we've got to help people learn this somewhere. I think it's why podcasts are springing up. I think in many ways people are saying, I get some freedom from a podcast where they're having honest and sincere extended discussions. I can't get that anywhere else. And, and someday I hope that our communities will be able to do that again. But I think all of us have this feeling that the old structures aren't working and the new ones haven't been fully created yet. Mm. And I can also tell you, I know this to be true. There are so many good people who are pouring out their lives, trying to create those new structures. And, and, and I think it will happen. I think it is happening, but. Can you give us, can you give us a taste of what you envision those new structures could be? Sure. Sure. Well, I, I, I'll tell you the, the, the example I want to give is it's not of a church. It's of a synagogue. So I have a dear friend who's a rabbi of a, um, of a Jewish community in California named Icar. And Icar is a Jewish community, but they understand that the people who are coming are, have all kinds of different relationships to, to Judaism. Some of them are so ashamed of what the state of Israel is doing to the Palestinian people that they can barely stand to use the word Jewish anymore because they don't want to be associated with something they see as being very harmful. You know, other people, their lives were falling apart. And when they came back to synagogue, that gave the framework to their lives that they needed. Some deeply have a belief in God. Others, you know, they're interested in faith and spirituality, but the idea of God solves a problem. And what they're doing is they're creating liturgy that has room for people in all those different places. And I think in some ways it's easier for me to see it happening in a Jewish community and then to realize, oh, that's what so many of us are trying to do in Christian communities too. We just have a, a slightly different set of issues. But I was just, just in conversation with some friends in Denver. They have a beautiful community called Highlands Church and they've gone through a big rethinking process and what a beautiful community. And you're in, in Tennessee and there's, a friend of just a gifted young guy named named Josh Scott, who now is leading a congregation there called Grace Point. 
they're just experimenting and trying to move into this space. And they're just all over the country. You know, we can kind of go state by state. There are places where this is springing up and not, no place is perfect, but they're, they're leaning into new space. And, and I think, I think we're going to get there eventually, but it's like a lot of things, you know, like pregnancy, you wish you could speed it up, but it takes its time. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say thank you for your time and I appreciate your writings. And if somebody's listening to this, Brian, and they really like some of the things you're talking about, where would you suggest someone who doesn't know you to start? I know you've written a yeah. ton of books, you know, A New Kind of Christian, Naked Spirituality, which they just go to your website. What, what yeah. would you suggest? Yeah, my website's brianmclaren.net and there are links to my social media and lists and all my books and other online resources. So anything that's there, I hope people will find helpful. Just brianmclaren.net. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's on your agenda the next, over the next year in 2021? What, what are you going to be focused on more writing, working at the CAC or what? So, well, I continue to teach at the CAC and that's a great experience. Of course, everything, at least um, between now and June is online. Uh, So maybe by the end of the year, we'll be back in person again. I don't know, but but actually, I wrote this book, Faith After Doubt, as one of a two-book kind of pair. And the sequel to the book is called Do I Stay Christian? Mm. And so that's what I've been working on. And so in the next few months, I'll be. Is there anything you can tease us with that? <laughs> Give well, us any glimpses, maybe a high-level overview, what it's going to talk about? Yeah. So uh, what I did in the book is that it's in three parts. And each part has 10 chapters. And the first part is called no, do I stay Christian? And the answer is no. And I have 10 chapters on really good reasons not to stay Christian. And then the second part is called yes. And there I give it, even in spite of the first 10 chapters, here are 10, <coughs> excuse me, good reasons to stay Christian. And then the last part is called how. And I'm saying there, maybe you're going to stay Christian. Maybe you're not. Either way, you're going to have to live some kind of a life. So how are you going to do it? And I try to sort of draw 10 insights from the struggle of the first two sections to say, what does it mean to live a good life? How can we, what kind of life do we want to live? So that's really the, the shape of that book. Mm. And it, it's felt, you know, these two books just feel like they're, they, they kind of one will feed into the other. So. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your honesty and transparency. And I think in the book, Faith After Doubt, if somebody wants to know a little bit more about your history and your own personal story, you fill it full of that as well as you know the faith and journey and life journeys of so many others. So again, thank you for, thank you for writing it. It's meant a lot to me and I know it's meant a lot to others. Well, thanks. And thanks for the good work you're doing in hosting these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate it. As always, go to brianmclaren.net and you can see all of, you've got some really good downloadable eBooks and documents and things there too. So it's not just your, your books that you can buy on Amazon, but all, and blogs, but actually you've got resources on the site, correct? That's right. Yeah. Good. I, I recommend the download about bias. What's that one called? It's called Learning How to See. Learning How to See and, and the podcast by the same name. Brian, this has been a treat. Thank you for, for taking the time this evening and hopefully we'll talk to you soon. 